It's September 13th, 2022, and after a short hiatus, we are back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. Uh, Good to be back, Matt. Thanks, Eric. (laughs) So the first one we're going to do, Naval Research Boss wants experimentation czar powers. And so that's, of course, uh, Rear Admiral Lauren Selby, who is the chief of naval uh, research over the Office of Naval Research. And he's, you know, he... We talked about this a little while ago. He had the the small, the agile, the many uh, kinds of things. He's really big on the experimentation and unmanned and and networking and all that. So here he's kind of talking about um, getting more cheap, uncrewed system, wants to buy hundreds or even thousands of them. uh, But there's no really good way to make that happen quickly. Uh, So he's like, quote here, we've got to figure that piece out, which means flexible funding. And that's something we just recently <laughs> talked about on a previous episode of the podcast uh, from your paper. But yeah, I think one of the really interesting points here for me was, you know, the usual way we think about technology transition. It's like you have the science and technology crew like Office of Nature, Naval Research or, you know, DARPA or what have you. They kind of bring it up to a certain technology readiness level, um, but not like operational prototypes. And then they usually sometimes they do it. You know, it's pretty fuzzy there, like what is like prototype or not. But then they like try to hand it over and you got to get these agreements with the acquisition organizations who are going to accept it. And he's kind of pointing out here, rather than getting two organizations on the same page on opposite sides of this valley of death uh, between S&T and a program of record and acquisition, Selby prefers to talk about a bridge owner. That would be uh, that new experimentation czar. I don't like the czar word, but I think there is something about that integrated decision making. Uh, what, what's your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is always tough, right? Because even if you had flexible funding, you you, you need the Navy leadership to actually support, you know, this person making some of these decisions. And I think when you're in the research space and you're just executing some six one to six three, maybe a little six four, you know, it's not a big deal. But if you were if you were going to do some of the things that I think he's saying, which is like, you know, scale really quickly, I mean, those decisions will still have to go through service leadership, um, you know, once you get into the bigger dollars. So, you know, I don't think he can definitely be the bridge owner to some extent, but he's going to have to get, you know, he's going to have to pay pay the toll to cross the bridge, you know, at some point. Um but I do. But I how do long think, do you think it, do you think it will take? Right, because I think what he's saying here is like. Even, of course, like you're not probably going to buy like a whole fleet of ships, right? Like right out the bat. And that's the whole purpose of this program of record. But would it take multiple years to get all the Navy on board and then get it through the program? Or if you have this flexible amount of money as you get people on board and when that decision arrives, the money's already available there for you. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, I I think... um... I think I was just making the point about like, you know, he's definitely going to have a lot of stakeholders to make yeah. some of those decisions beyond, beyond what he's doing today. But you're right. No, if, if the service leadership and the, um, you, you know, OpNav, whatever is like, yeah, this is, this is great. I love what, uh, love what the Admiral did here. We want to scale that. We want to get, you know, order 300 next year and 500 next year. Um, if you had flexible funding, if you could go do some of the new start stuff that we've talked about, um, you, you could, uh, cross that bridge a lot easier and, and, you know, make those decisions. So you might still have an internal process to go through and, and you definitely have to do some, have some deliberation, but you would be able to do that. The, the one thing I will say, so the big thing I took away from this though, 
is the shift away. If you think about prototyping the way that we've typically done it to date, it's always been kind of a risk reduction mechanism. It's like something is risky because it's coming out of a lab or you know academia or you know DARPA, and it still has a bunch of risk associated with it. It's not quite mature enough. And so it was always about risk reduction, right? Tech, tech maturation and risk reduction, but you know, risk was always kind of a big key, tech, tech, tech readiness levels and all that stuff. Um, but really, you know, he's kind of shifting. I feel like shifting the uh, the card around in, in, the, in the sense of like, yeah, maybe it's not about risk reduction. Maybe it's about experimentation and actually, you know, uh, integrating it with operations. Because he uses the the analogy he uses with the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab where you do have, uh, you know, operators, right? Like they're testing things out kind of SOCOM style. And so, and you see this with Task Force 59 where they're, you know, uh, basically sort of developing con- concepts of operations for some of these new technologies saying, oh, we could use it this way. You know, this ship could control that. Or we could, you know, deploy this in this way, you know, ahead of the fleet or, you know, we're working those details out. And so I think he's onto something there is maybe we need to shift our gears from like this whole, risk reduction, tech maturation, which you know, you might need, but but shifting it more to experimentation and saying, does this work in the operations that we have today? How can we adapt our operations? And then I think once you figure those things out, man, that's a lot easier sell up the chain. You know, uh, the operational folks will get on board a lot faster if there's a lot of head nods around the table, like, yeah, this tech really works. We really like this. So I think he might be onto something there. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. I think the experimentation piece and getting operational, I think that's kind of key. And some of the concern, right, because, you know, a lot of oversight is like, well, you'd want to do all this experimentation, but you never put it in the palm. You never give me the life cycle plan. How do I know it's going to be, you know, operationally useful and, you know, I can sustain it and all this kind of stuff. And it seems like, well, if you kind of have these gauntlets of experimentation where it's kind of being co-developed to get the product mission fit, um, and you're kind of getting operators to provide that input in real time, then you're already kind of de-risking that operational piece. You're not like de-risking necessarily. Well, you are the EMD piece as well, but you could potentially go much faster into fielding and through those iterations. And it's more of a kind of a continuous process, even for hardware things, make it look a lot more so- like software. So I think, you're, I think you're right. I think there's something about that. And the, the nice thing would be, Uh, For these uh, experiments, like Scout is one of them they're talking about, which is focused on narcotics interdiction in U.S. Southcom. But it's like does a lot of ISR things. So it's really kind of applicable to everything. Uh, But from these experiments, you almost like generate the requirement out of it, right? Like the after action report should almost be like the requirement um, that's been developed. And then you should have some money at that point to say, hey, we've got the we got the fit, we got the requirement, let's go, you know? Yeah, exactly. It's like if, if the operational folks, you know, recognize this this technology, whatever that's coming out the lab, if they recognize it as something useful and something that will contribute and improve operations, it's like, well, why do you need a requirement? Like, what else do you need? You know, like, let's just go field that thing. Um, you know, so, yeah, of course, the, there will always be some other other challenges potentially, but but that's like a huge hurdle. So, yeah, I'm with you. Yeah, and it also de-risks the things that, like, what's the size of the rack it needs to go on? It's just like, just doing it. It's like, you don't need to give mm-hmm. me this back. I'm just doing it. Uh, but I love this part here. The Commission on Planning, Programming, Budgeting, Execution Reform, mandated in the NDAA, uh, might look at 
tackling this restrictive nature of today's line by line budgeting and create some flexible funding pot. So glad he's he's bringing that up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we'll see what works there. The next one we got here is also a pretty big. This is a big one in my mind. Futures Command faces identity crisis as Army shifts mission. And so this one, I know you were interested. You sent it over to me, uh, but this is really about that that big organizational change in the Army where. Army Futures Command was stood up. It took a lot more um, authority and responsibility for modernization of the Army and kind of led some of that that change that happened in the 2017, 18, 19, 2020 time frame. And the whole point here, and then, of course, a few weeks ago, we we heard that the Secretary of the Army kind of issued a memo voiding a lot of that um, Army modernization directives and shifted the authority out of Army Futures Command and back into the, the Service Acquisition Authority and really kind of gave the Service Acquisition Authority renewed control over science and technology in that kind of transition phase. Um, so that was pretty interesting. You know, one of the, the bolded quotes here is that the branch raised concerns that Army Futures Command had too much freedom to direct funding and that its process could undermine civilian control of the budget. Which is interesting. So I think like the the cross-functional teams and Army Futures Command and their elements of the staff structure were kind of like directing where the the dollars will kind of go right in that budget process to kind of make those those fast shifts that we've been seeing right with the I think it's like the twenty five by twenty five programs and then there's thirty uh, signature mm-hmm. programs uh, that they're going to field by twenty thirty. And so that whole move was there. But what can, what confused me on this, and I'd be interested in your view, um, the civilian thing is a little bit weird because ultimately uh, Secretary of the Army Esper had to do all that, right? Like they had to go through the night court. Esper literally sat at the table with Comptroller and other folks, and they went through those and they made those trade-offs. So even though Army Futures Command took more responsibility for you know, proposing it's not like they just like win over civilian, you know, w- without civilian control. So I was kind of confused on the civilian part. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Yeah, Secretary Esper and Ryan, Secretary Ryan McCarthy both really supported General Murray uh, and, and the Air Force uh, or the uh, Army Futures Command um, orchestration. And I think they kind of gave him a lot more uh, power uh, than maybe typically was, was would be given to a four star. And yeah, but they had they ultimately kind of delegated that, right? So it was under their purview. I think though, what it did, one especially when the secretary leadership changed out, was you know the way the processes had been set up internally, it kept ASALT out of the loop, and so yeah, that part of the civilian control became a little bit more. And apparently, there was a lot of struggles. I guess you know internally there was there were a lot of struggles even during that secretary Esper McCarthy period with with ASALT where they would battle internally. And sometimes, you know, ASALT would just give in and let Army Futures do what they needed. Sometimes they would, you know, fight and, and we would go up to the secretary and they'd have to make a decision. So, you know, I, I don't think it was ever clean, but I think that when the leadership changed out, it just became even worse because they didn't, didn't have that support anymore. I'm, I'm of the opinion, though, that in general, this isn't a bad thing for uh, that to go back to ASALT, I mean, it is the Army SAE who has a lot of a lot of control and uh, authority, responsibility, however you want to put it, over some of the investment decisions in terms of recommendations, in terms of, um, uh, you know, sort of those, uh, 
you know, what are the, what are the key investments you need to make? Maybe enabling technologies, maybe, you know, infrastructure investments, all that kind of stuff that, that, that office is sort of responsible for and all the PEOs below it. So I think AFC maybe did have too much power. Uh, what I hope doesn't happen though, is that they really have done a good job, it seems, of getting into this mode of experimentation. And you can see that with project convergence uh, as part of, you know, the whole, their contribution to JADC2. And I think they really have shown that, you know, even with other programs like, uh, you know, robotic combat vehicles and JLTV, uh, that they've been willing to do a lot of experimentation and allow the operators to inform uh, some of those investment decisions to say, we like this, we don't like this. And I really do hope that ASLOP still honors that. And even though they, they have more power, that they will respect that, that feedback and that they, that won't get lost in this, in this transition. So that's one thing. Yeah, one, it, it almost seems like there might have needed to just be that little shift where get AFC in there, shake things up, and then like kind of transfer it back as like you start kind of getting into the execution mode of, the, of that shakeup. Yeah, I guess the one thing that I'm discouraged about right now is that the the uh, army's army they saw at the acquisition office is is pretty controlling right now. So any new programs have to go through the SAE, and that includes ACAT three programs. So that that is very disappointing. Um, I hope that changes, but uh, yeah, as of right now, it seems like I don't know if that shakeup that AFC did. I don't know if it's sticking or how that will play out um, in terms of, you know, PEOs having some flexibility to, to make some decisions, you know, within their purview uh, without having to go to the SAE. So I guess we'll, we'll see what happens here over the next year. Uh, you know, they have some time in office now and we'll see if they start to divest some of that authority back to the PEOs. Yeah, there was also recently, I think I sent this one to you as well, U.S. Army Futures Command Research Program Realignment from the National Academy of Sciences that just came out, kind of talking a lot about this uh, this reorganization that was done and what are the issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of probably what they're going to report to Congress might come out of that and other studies. But here's, here's just the quote. In the pre-AFC years, TRADOC, um, Training and Doctrine Command, of course, uh, presented its requirements to the Army G357 for prioritization and validation and the G8 for funding for resources, similar to the Navy and Air Force's processes. This previous process was in alignment with established DOD acquisition policies. Now with the creation of AFC, these responsibilities have been consolidated in AFC and its G357 and G8 organizations which in the opinion of this committee has eliminated the, eliminated the checks and balances inherent in the previous system. The organizational merging of requirements and resource allocation is unique within DOD and may lead to perceived conflicts of mission, contracting, acquisition within the Army and industry. Um, so they actually see like this. It's, it's interesting there, just that, that lens and perspective, because I tend to believe that integrated decisions are superior decisions um, to like just having like all these offices with all these says and, you know, everyone just layers yeah. in, right. That's where you get um, gold plated requirements. And maybe that's how they can kind of create executable programs. Cause if you can put those two things together, then you're making the trade spaces that make sense. Um, so I don't know. I mean, maybe it made sense to do it that way or maybe it, it is out of line, but there is probably something to having uh, some, experiments or non-conformities within large organizations just to kind of see what works and what doesn't work. But it looks like they're kind of leaning towards not working. 
Yeah, I agree with you on the integrated thing. Um, I just think in DoD, you know, or pick, you know, pick a service. It's hard to find one person beyond besides the secretary who can make who can make a single who can make a decision. But so ultimately, it does require some collaboration. Uh, but you know, the thing that will be really bad out of this, and, and I hope it doesn't happen, is that there's like now this unhealthy tension between AFC and there's this sort of power grab of ASOLID and, and maybe the you know, G3, G5s uh, who feel like they were disenfranchised before and now they're going to completely shut out AFC and it just becomes a defunct organization. Really hope that doesn't happen because General Murray, I think, had a really good vision for putting it in Austin, putting it in close, you know, close to innovation, uh, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, the innovation hubs. And so, you know, there's a lot of value there and I hope they can still glean that from uh, from that organization. Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is a power shift away from Austin and back towards Washington in many respects, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. That's what you know, if you put these last two together, you know, what's going on with AFC? It almost feels like Admiral Selby, what he wanted to do there in the Navy um, was kind of similar, <laughs> right? Like, let's have a like an owner of this this valley of death and make that kind of actually a uniformed officer, right? <laughs> it seems like... Uh, maybe that was tried in AFC and maybe it didn't work out quite so well, but Selby, I think has a little bit different vision of how he wants to throw experimentation into that mix. But I think the army was, was thinking about that too. So now I'd be interested to kind of like compare and contrast those. Actually, that's a good point. I think, you know, I didn't think about it from that angle, but if you look at the air force process, which I know best, you know, the, the match comms, uh, you know, so you have like, you know, Pacific air forces and air combat command and, uh, you know, um, European, uh, the European Air Forces, you know, so you have you have these different, uh, you know, MAGCOMs that submit requirements. And those requirements do go to the G3, you know, G5, G8. And, a, you know, a, they, not the G. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm sorry. A, A3, A5 and A8. So, yeah. So those MAGCOMs are submitting those inputs to uh, through that process. Right. For the operator operational side to say, yeah, that, those are those are valid. Those are, you know, we support them. And then for the for the eight the resourcing side to say, yeah, here's how much money we you know we want to put against that and make those recommendations to the secretary and the chief. So, you know, if you think about it, maybe it would make sense because you know the headquarters operations have people coming in and out of it. There's not continuity. They often don't have the technical expertise. So they're not structured. They're not they're not close with the integration hubs. So or the uh, innovation hubs. And so maybe AFC actually did make sense for consolidation, sort of like Tradoc did, a consolidation of those different army requirements across the different domains lined with the CFTs to, to actually be that integrator and say, yeah, actually, you know, collectively, we've done this experimentation. We found this works. This doesn't work. Um, hopefully they involved, G, you know, the G3, G5 and stuff in that in those uh, experiments. And if they did, then they can actually put together an integrated position, Submit that to headquarters, right? They still go through that process. They still have to validate it and say, yeah, yeah, we agree with that. Here's how much we want to put against these individual things. But, you know, maybe it does make sense for AFC to continue to be that organization. And then ASALT's really informing it from an acquisition perspective. What's executable? What, you know, what, how, much can, how much can be produced in a year? You know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so yeah, I actually like your thought there. Like if, say, say, the, say that, the, um, you know, Admiral Selby Shop, O&R, basically was that consolidator for the Navy to say, here's all the different requirements and here are the different ways it could be met based on the experiments. Some of this is going to be continuation of current programs, but if they were a consolidator of some, some requirements, 
they, you know, they could submit that through the normal process through OpNav and Nine, and then, you know, get the funding if the Secretary of the Navy approved. So I don't know. It does seem like this could could still work, but I'm not sure if they've had too much power ripped away from them if they still are able to do any of that. <laughs> yeah. I guess we'll see. Well, something we'll be keeping our eye on. Uh, next one we got, Hermius acquires Velo 3D printers to 3D print parts for the 38,000 mo- 3,800 mile per hour <laughs> hypersonic airplane. 38,000 would be pretty great, but oh, they're pretty great. 3,800 is closer to, to a Mach 5. Uh, so using Velo 3D's end-to-end metal additive manufacturing solution, they'll be able to build, uh, build some parts for the engine and the aircraft itself. And so Velo founder, Benny Bueller, he's saying that the thing that they're really solving here is the temperature vibrations and um, aerodynamics. So, so the 3D printing will, will, help, will help out there. And he actually gave a nice little plug. He, he actually thinks that, uh, you know, Hermes is really going to actually make this a reality. So I'm, I'm pretty bullish on them too. I, I hope they kind of meet their milestones. They, uh, I, they are integrating, right? Like this kind of purchase here is kind of like a vertical integration. And that's kind of one of the methodologies they kind of spelled out pretty early on um, to kind of close that loop. Of course, I think one of the things that they were saying is for an aircraft like this, the difference between like where the inlet, you know, begins and where the airframes ends and where propulsion starts, you know, like it's all pretty fuzzy. It's pretty very highly integrated. Um, So that's SpaceX definitely did that. They brought a a lot of that stuff in-house. I think that vertical integration is going to be kind of key for this next segment of kind of deep tech firms. Yeah, I mean, particularly since this is a, uh, I mean, these are the these are the parts to build the aircraft. So, yeah, if you, if you had to subcontract this, it'd be probably pretty risky, um, especially if you're going to like continue to advance the state of the art. You know, as they're going to do more experimentation and test things out, they're going to learn a lot, and they're going to have to go back and make changes. Yeah. So yeah, having good imagine lead times on those types. Oh of yeah. Oh god. Well, well, just think about forgings. I mean, uh, any time I've ever had to deal with forgings through, through my career, it's a freaking nightmare. I mean, you'd have to pay, you know, extra surcharges to get ahead of the queue, but there was always a, a super long queue for anything, especially like titanium um, and things like that, that, that would take a long time. So this, you know, 3D printing added manufacturing uh, really is a game changer. And the one thing too with forgings is they're not always uh, consistent, right? There's a lot of different tolerances and you can have uh, kind of nuances in the different ones. And so this part might be super structurally sound and you get another one and there's some issues. So yeah, the other piece about having, being able to use that in manufacturing and having control of that is you can really have that consistency, uh, which is really, really key, right? When you're dealing with like things like you talked about temperature, vibration, and aerodynamics one little thing out of place at at those speeds could you know cause the whole thing to disrupt so so yeah it makes a lot of sense yeah it'd be cool you know it's in the early days of a lot of this stuff but i would expect one one day that a lot of this might actually disaggregate back into outsourcing you know kind of like software today a lot of it's kind of just being like all these tools that you plug in through apis it'd be cool to see yeah, you know, that kind of happened in a physical world, however, however far that's off. <laughs> I mean, I still think, I think we've talked about it before, but I could, I still see disaggregation of, of designs, like the infrastructure, you know, maybe only so many companies want to invest in some of the super high end stuff, but, you know, the printers and things, but the designs, like 
I'd love to see more open source, like, hey, just, you know, like, you know, maybe Hermes should try this. Here's, you know, uh, give us a better hypersonic design, you know, send in hypersonic designs. If we pick it, we will give you, you know, $5 million um, and just see what you get. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of geniuses out there that probably have a lot of ideas. And if they could design, you know, using, you know, 3D printing and say, yeah, this is how the part, this is the radius, this is this, you know, this is that you know, airflow that would happen. You know, if they could send in things like that, um, I see the design piece for additive manufacturing definitely disaggregating and like you could get it from a million different people around the world that have different ideas on things. I think it'd be pretty fun. Well, next one we got here, Ryan Metal and Andural joined forces on the optionally manned fighting vehicle from the Defense News. This is a pretty, pretty cool little partnership. And I think we're starting to see more of these like Epirus is, is teaming up with, I think it's General Dynamics on on the striker and you know here we got Antural. And not only that, it, like Ryan Metal is a is a foreign company, right? And then they also looks like they have on the team Textron uh and L3 Technologies and Allison Transmission. So this is called Team Links here for optionally man fighting <laughs> vehicle. Uh, but it seems like a pretty uh competitive uh design. You know, one of the things that they're gonna do here is it looks like well of course they're gonna do sensor integration, command and control counter UAS. So Enduro is going to bring that to the table, but I think they're also going to, I'm not sure if they put it in this article, but they also have the air launched effects thing from Altius, right? So there's, there's a separate kind of capability that they might be able to bring to it. So a lot of interesting stuff here, but it would be cool to see them kind of start breaking into these programs of record. I'm not really sure, you know, what types of, or if any programs of record they have, it seemed like they were like, Hey, let's, go to Australia, go do some of these, uh, um, you know, submarine programs or otherwise, and then kind of sell it back ITAR free <laughs> to the U S. So, um, it'd be cool. It'd be interesting to see, you know, like how, what kinds of programs they break into domestically versus internationally. Yeah. I mean, I, I will say the, the Rhine metal on, on this, uh, that's actually on this offering is an American subsidiary. So, and they, oh, I, yeah. I do believe that they actually, if I'm not mistaken, because I worked with Remetal on F-35 ammo, if you can kind of believe like this might might have been where they started, where they actually became an American subsidiary because they were not at that point. We were trying to, we actually bought ammo from Germany and it was a big deal, right? It was like, you know, anytime you try to do that, it's always a big nightmare. So uh, I think they may have initially gotten a subsidiary because they were selling, they do sell the F-35 ammo. So it's like a unique, a really unique thing. And this is a German company that specializes in that. And um, so, yeah, so they, they got an American subsidiary. Uh, it is interesting. I guess it's kind of interesting to see Raytheon being a sub like this, right? Raytheon and L3 being a sub to yeah. uh, a, a, not a typical prime. So, yeah, it's going to be pretty interesting because the OMFV, I mean, the requirements on that are, you know, are pretty, pretty substantial. So they're, they're going to need to bring all of their, uh, all their specialties to the forefront to win that. It is a real, uh, it's a pretty, pretty robust uh, RFP that, the, that they have out in the street. So, um, And it's yeah, actually a much simpler RFP than, than existing. <laughs> yeah. Before, right? <laughs> yeah. Simpler. Yeah. So the requirements change, but man, it's still asking for a lot. There's, there are a lot of trade-offs, like things are like um, being able to operate with electric power and things like that. There are some optional things, but, uh, but yeah, there's still, still, still some pretty, pretty uh, robust requirements that have to be met. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see how they do in the competition. I hope they, hope they do well with that team. They should at least have a pretty good, pretty good, uh, 
pretty good, uh, you know, competition or at least be, uh, be in the game. So. Yeah, I guess they'll be down selecting from five to I think three within the next year or two. So, yep. um, exactly. we'll see who, who kind of survives the gauntlet. <laughs> the U S military needs a lot more artillery shells, rockets, and missiles for the next war from task and purpose. And a couple, couple interesting little tidbits here. Um, in February, 2018, there was actually February 18, 18 was like the only year that we saw like a really big, you know, increase in like munitions uh, funding. Uh, and in 2018, they bought about 150,000 more 155 millimeter howitzer shells. And that represented an 825% increase in the number of shells. Um, so there was like a bunch of like munitions, like stories going on around that time, but it seemed like a little blip. Um, they haven't really been restockpiling that too much, but the 150,000 shells isn't really all that much. Uh, Ukraine is, uh, expending 6,000 shells a day. And we've already, the U.S., that is, provided Ukraine 806,000 shells for the 155 millimeter. Um, so that's quite a bit. And then another 108,000 for the 105. Um, so I think this is just the thing that we've always been talking about, right? You're just like, when you get into one of these things, there's just going to be so much more uh, munitions and missiles that are going to get launched and, and expended much faster than we probably have in our stockpiles or people expect, I think people expect it. They're just not really planning for it um, adequately in some respects, because it forces these types of trade-offs, but you know, even 6,000 shells a day for Ukrainian forces. If we look back on like the Psalm, it's going to be like hundreds of thousands of shells a day. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if you look at like a big operation in world war two, we're probably talking that amount. So um, yeah, that's something to think about, huh? Yeah, especially since, you know, some of the uh, Army's vision is that they will use artillery in the Pacific fight. And, you know, because they do have some of these really long range, um, uh, you know, long range cannons and, and uh, artillery uh, systems. So, you know, <laughs> in, in that kind of fight, you're going to need a lot of shells. You're probably gonna And be... Taiwan's going to need a lot of shells if there's a landing. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I do think I am encouraged on the munitions front. Um, I know we have to finish our article, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, we, but the, the, uh, the messaging, uh, at least from the department, I mean, it's at the ANAS level, they're working, uh, you know, a- actually working DPA projects to expand the industrial base. They, they realize the constraints, uh, you know, so I think, I think there's more emphasis on this ever than there ever has been before. Yeah. Um, I'm still not sure they're moving fast enough. And, uh, you know, you just look at cruise missile buys and, and things that you know will just be needed for that fight. Long range stuff. Uh, Rand did a great study where they showed just how many, how many JASMs you would need to deny some of the Chinese airfields that would be involved in a, in a Taiwan situation. And it's like, you know, it's more than half of the inventory. So, um, you know, you start to look at things like that and you just go like, yeah, we should be like tripling, quadrupling you know, building plants, like it's like going out of style. Like we, we need to get munitions up. So yeah, hopefully this is a wake up call for the army. I mean, man, 806,000 when we're only buying 150,000 a year, uh, you know, that, that should, that tells, that tells the whole story right there. It's pretty Well, 150,000 was like a huge ramp up to like. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. 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 Good point. Good point. Yeah. So yeah, that's definitely an issue. And then I think that gets back to some of this force structure, 2030 Marine stuff, right? Like, uh, some of the generals are like, you need those artillery shells. Like you're not, you're just not going to be able to do it with the uh, high Mars and the gimblers and all of that. You're just going to run out of those shells. They're expensive. You, you, you need to double down on, 
Uh, I think you need both. You know, I don't think there's a way around it. Well, I mean, the MEF, the first MEF did actually add back in artillery. So they did add in some. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah. Right. So so, so at least they do have that in, in combination with the HIMARS. But, but I think it's yeah, not, artillery too, right? I think it is. Yeah. But, I mean, HIMARS is proving itself out too. So <laughs> True. I mean, the, 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 the Russian, you look at. are there. <laughs> yeah. You see the wall. I mean, you saw the Ukrainian, uh, what are they calling it? The Blitzkrieg or something where they t- retook 40 cities in like a week or something. Uh, you know, yeah. a lot of that was due to high Mars. So yeah, it's kind of, I guess you need both, like you said. Yeah, I didn't hear it. It was due to high Mars. I, I was, I was kind of oh, clear yeah. on what, what caused the, the kind of quick, quick change in, in positions. High Mars basically pushed the, made the Russian forces retreat. So they couldn't use their artillery as close as they, as close as they were before and just pushed, kept pushing some of the forces back. Um, so it was not that not that artillery wasn't in play; it definitely wasn't play. But uh, High Mars wasn't particularly uh, effective for for keeping them keeping them at bay and giving giving the Ukrainian forces some room. Yeah, that's a pretty. Big, I mean, if that was kind of the thing that moved it, that's a pretty sh- big strategic, you know, oh, yeah. advantage there. Yeah. All right, GAO defense. Uh, well, this is from the GAO. Defense intelligence agencies need better plan to buy commercial satellite imagery. And so there's a big GAO report, but this is kind of a summary coming out of Space News. I wanted to go through that whole report, but it's pretty long. I didn't really have time. Uh, but it looks here like the issue really is, okay, we're, we're on Ukraine. How come the U.S. is not being, is not like leveraging all these commercial ISR, you know, imaging uh, capabilities, right? It's taking too long. And they're basically saying... Uh, they're not taking advantage of available commercial technology due to slow and cumbersome procurement methods. And then they give a bunch of recommendations. And some of those recommendations are like, create a plan of action, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> uh, coordinate it and, and create the plan. Um, but it, it really seems like, you know, Mike Brown probably has the, the answer to this, right? Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I know he does, you know, I mean, the commercial satellite imagery, um, you know, sector is, is just, blowing up, right? Like there's, there's a lot of demand on the commercial side anyway, uh, for some of the stuff, but they definitely want to play in defense. And, uh, I, I think this is one of those areas too, where if the DOD sent a clear demand signal and said, okay, if there's something that the commercial sector is not currently, uh, meeting, you know, whether for SDA or for imagery, uh, if they clearly said, you know, we need these capabilities. And if you did, you know, we would, we would procure your services. Um, Industry would respond. I mean, the Maxars and the Hawkeye 360s and all this, you know, they're ready to jump into this. They, you know, they've been doing it with Ukraine. They've, they've actually been supporting the Space Force for a number of years. But uh, one of the challenges in the report, uh, besides the fact that they not, aren't buying, you know, aren't really buying services the way they, they, uh, they could, is this uh, idea of that, you know, NGA, NRO and Space Force are not really putting together the capabilities to ingest the commercial data in a way that's operationally useful. So that's, that's one of the things they have to do is they have to be able to um, set up the system so that they can pull this in and make it part of their operational picture. So you may pair it, right? You may pair some of this commercial, commercial data with more exotic sensors and, and and collectively that will give you a really good picture or the, you know, the things that you need to, you need to know for either for the Intel side or for the DOD operational side. Um, and I think I think that's one of the one of the things. The report also talks about the lack of coordinating between DoD and IC, and, and the fact that they're probably for procuring a lot of you know duplicate 
you know, kind of kind of uh, systems and things like that that could be turned over to commercial or you could leverage commercial, maybe have like a, you know, kind of a quantity buy or get some, you know, some discounts there with all the Intel agencies and the Space Force working together. You know, you could probably come up with some really good service contracts and say, you know, we, we have scale and now we have some leverage, right? So yeah, they need to, we need to do better. There's, there's too much opportunity space out there and just not taking advantage of it. I agree quite a bit. And so let's move on and kind of stay in this area. Reliance on dual use technology is a trap. Uh, War on the Rocks and kind of like this one, not just because Jake Chapman wrote it, uh, but also because he uh, referenced my articles in there. <laughs> uh, but what he's saying here, you know, like it's it's pretty, um, I think one of the things about, you know, trying to break into the defense industry that most of the the companies will say is, it's just a huge barrier, right? Like you need a lot of systems. It's huge cycle times. It's, the better way to go at it is scale a commercial product. And then when you kind of have the size and, and the, the interest, then go for government. So you can like tackle that maze of, of defense, right? Um, and that will better prepare you for, for the whole thing. And what he's saying here is, yeah, that's like, you know, that's the dual use technology route. That's kind of where a lot of people are being pushed currently. But there's a couple problems of that. One is the dual use hack into DoD um, slows DoD's ability to adopt and deploy new capabilities. So you only get it when it's kind of a little bit outdated, right? When once it becomes kind of commoditized and commercialized, you're a little, you're now going to get into DoD. So you're definitely behind the curve. But the bigger problem here is that not all of the solutions are necessarily amenable to the dual use um, technology. So. I think, you know, cybersecurity seems like a pretty obvious one where it's like, yeah, like, you know, some of that uh, two-factor authentication and zero trust and, you know, all the cyber stuff that CrowdStrike is doing and others. I'm sure a lot of that kind of is similar with DOD, but maybe not everything, you know, building ships might be a little bit different in some respects, but even though the the new USVs are actually built with, uh, you know, commercial kinds of ships, right? But there's got to be some things. Um you know, high energy lasers and hypersonics are one of them, but we're just talking about Hermius. So there's a lot of, I don't know, you know, there are these, these companies, right? Like Epirus and Enduro that are doing like, you know, national security challenges, but not taking the dual use that do it commercial mm -hmm. first, right? They're going straight to, to government. I think they're kind of struggling, um, even though they're doing pretty well, but it's not an easy path, right? Yeah, and I think that's the the shame of it all, right? Is that you do have these companies, they have their mission is, you know, they want to do something for national security, they want to contribute. And so they're they're not spending years trying to find the perfect, you know, product market fit for their solution. They're actually saying like, or you know, on the commercial side, they're actually saying, Hey, I want to get into DOD, I want to support where, you know, whoever needs this. And so they're actually trying to find users, right? You, you see a lot of small companies that they just want user feedback. They just want to know, is this on the right track? Like, you know, is this useful? Uh, if not, tell me, you know, how, how can I make it useful? So I, I think it's a shame that we're not sort of cultivating those companies more and saying, you know, yeah, we want you. And Dr. Roper used to say this. He's like, I want to see more unicorns, you know, uh, you know, basically add to the prime prime pool come, come from the startup community. So and we've had some of those, right, with Andrew and Palantir and things like that. But but we need a lot more. And so I think this shows just how the department 
it needs to take advantage of those those companies that that are are willing to spend a little bit of time in defense uh trying to make it work before they switch you know pivot and switch gears to the commercial sector and we should be getting those guys contracts and doing you know using using you know experimentation money to kind of keep them uh keep them in the game right so try out their things if it's not working and it's not going to work we should just let them know right yeah this is probably not gonna it probably not gonna be deployed and then they can make their decisions but we need to we need to be better in that relationship and so yeah i struggle i do struggle with this one too because it's like we always sort of said for a long time that we wanted like companies that were in cyber trying to solve a defense problem we wanted them to be commercially viable but i you know it does it, you do kind of have to question that like it you know the defense sector does have a good amount of money if they are happy with the growth in defense what why why do they need to be commercially viable uh, and maybe they are bringing, you know, one or two year or one cycle behind tech. But man, for DOD, that's six cycles behind. You know, that's great. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, I think maybe we do need to rethink that that emphasis on dual use. It's uh, yeah, maybe a business decision, and maybe it works. But maybe in some cases, you should just focus on the on the market that you're that you're most that's most attractive to you. Yeah, or you know, it, it goes reverse, right? Like. DOD should just be the first adopter of these some of these things, like <laughs> yeah. Hermes with hypersonics, right. like Andorl with counter UAS, but I'm sure there's going to be tons of civilian applications for that um, coming pretty soon, right? Um, Epirus and their uh, microwave technology apparently can be used for like building transistors and other things like in the commercial hmm. sector. I'm not quite clear on that, but um, so yeah, I mean, maybe like going back to the old days, right? You start in defense and then you go out rather than um, as programs, as opposed to you start in DARPA, and then you go out and then you come back, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the next one we got, also USA Inc.'s deal with Sail Drone to build wind-powered drones as USV work expands. And so... Austell's Mobile Alabama Shipyard will start building a 65-foot aluminum sail drone surveyor drone in its modular manufacturing facility. Um, and so, yeah, it's pretty cool. There Again, here's another one of these kinds of team-ups of the new entrants and, and one of the older um, defense companies, or at least the traditional. Not, I wouldn't say they're older, but <laughs> uh, so the, one of the defense companies and start start using them in experimentation with the Fifth Fleet. And so I'm sure you also saw that there was the one of the sail drones got picked up by Iran, yeah, by Iran and then yeah. the, the destroyer had to go out there and pick it up. And it's like, well, this is a cocoa model. You want to sell us data as a service, right? But now we're going to go, go get your asset back. It's kind of, you know, so there's probably some things in terms of how like pricing is done and how, like what the rules of the road are going to be. If you're going to have a cocoa as a service model where there's physical things that can get like destroyed, you know, like, how oh yeah out, right yeah no yeah we had talked about that before i think uh i was even at a space conference where somebody was asking about like actually did ask the question like if i'm providing the space force a commercial service and china views you know my satellites as now a target and you know they're probably not going to use an asat on them but you know they might they might do some some ew jamming or you know shoot a laser at the optics and you know, it could damage it. So, you know, if my satellite gets damaged, will the Space Force cover that? And I think that's a really good question. So, yeah, you're right for this kind of thing. If they're going to use these uh, as a service kind of thing, uh, yeah, they're going to have to figure that out. Uh, Surge pricing. Yeah, you know, <laughs> some liability, you have some liability insurance on it, you know, that, that the military, military buys are, I, you know, I don't know. 
but yeah, we're, we're going to have to get smart about that. Um, with this, is, is that, is it, are they actually, is it, is it a given that they're going to use these as a service? Um, Oh, well, sale journey is definitely going that way with their own. Okay. Yeah. I, I, now they may have to pivot, right? I, or like they, they may have multiple models going at once, but I'm pretty sure they were, I, I saw articles where they were selling it as a service. Okay. Yeah, it does. I mean, cause uh, you know, in, in one regard, it does actually make a lot of sense for the Navy to have some of these um, on their own, if they're, even if they're not uh, doing the as a service thing, because there's a real ISR sort of uh you know, a component to this that makes these really adaptable and you can sort of just have these, have these all, you know, out all over trying to identify, you know, where things are at, which is very useful in the, the big ocean. And when you're trying to make sure you can target things that are a threat. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I think on the Iran thing, they actually did return it, I read, but they took all the cameras out of it. So that, that another lesson there is, you know, some of these USVs that have uh, sensors on them, we're probably going to have to be careful in terms of what sensors we put on them. They're probably gonna to have to be maybe on the lower end in some cases, or they're gonna to have to have some protection. Self-destruct uh, mode? Self-destruct mode or, uh, yeah, something where uh, once they're removed from their thing, the you know the circuit card, yeah, basically no longer active or something. I don't know. I don't know what the what the answer is, some anti-tamper kind of, kind of function there, but um, by, by the yeah, way, there was a, there's a DARPA, DARPA did so many, so many like crazy things and useful things and interesting things. But one of them was like um, disintegrating materials. So it's like you could have like these electronics on such a drone and then they would like spontaneously disintegrate on command. Wow. Like, wow. Interesting. Like, again, that might be a little bit too far off for our purposes of, you know, getting something deployed to the field and in the fit up. But it's, it's, it's funny nonetheless. It's like, a, yeah, it was, it's like the Tom Cruise Mission Impossible, you know, self-destruct in 30 seconds. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, good good lessons here. I, I love, you know, I love seeing how the sail drones just, uh, you know, were being integrated with Task Force 59 and some of those operations. You just saw, you just saw how useful that was, right? I mean, the, the Commodore, uh, you know, was making the point about just like how much they learned going through some of those exercises. So. So yeah, I hope, I hope this is really successful, and the uh, the Navy actually is able to sort of scale them up in a meaningful way, whether it's as a service or or buying the drones. China's Navy could catch up to America's by twenty thirty, analysts say, and so wasn't all too much of interest in this one, um, but uh, they were kind of talking about well, they want to incre- increase the number of cruisers and destroyers from thirty six to sixty, and you know, increased nuclear ballistic missile submarines from six to 10. The total tonnage of uh, Chinese Navy warships would increase from 1.3 million today to approximately 2 million tons by 2030, while the U.S. Navy's total tonnage worldwide is 4.5 million tons. And so everyone's kind of touting, right, in the the China report that came out and everything, like how China's Navy is larger and going to kind of accelerate and get away in terms of numbers um but it's always harder to kind of look at qualitative things um and maybe one of those aspects of qualitative things is the tonnage right like they have 1.3 million with more ships um in terms of tons and so the u.s has two to three times the tonnage so these ships are just way bigger right like they got a lot of these smaller like corvettes and cruisers whereas we got like 
these, these massive hundred thousand ton freaking you know aircraft carriers and even like the ddgs are really quite heavy um they're kind of getting maxed out here so i, I thought that was just interesting yeah i mean i don't know i've always the tonnage piece i i guess I mean, I guess it does show capacity and, and potential weapon sort of power. Um, but yeah, we, we do have six aircraft carriers, right? And so that has to be <laughs> has to be a big part of it. But 50 cruisers and destroyers and eight, you know, ballistic missile submarines and all that oh, we stuff. We had uh, 10 yeah. carriers. We only have six these days? Six, six active at any point? Yeah, I think six. Um, six, I think six are fielded are... and the other four or five are kind of maintenance at any given point. Oh, I think, yeah, I think I submarines so. are like 50%, like 50% of them are, are non-active. There was, of course, you know, that those GAO reports about like uh, the maintenance availabilities. In Sorry, six, six, six carriers in the Pacific fleet. Sorry. Oh, there you go. All right. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So, yeah. So they're, you know. Um, well, I think that's what they were doing there because they were like kind of comparing China's total naval strength to just like what we had in the Pacific, you know. Right. So, you know, but at the same time, I think you have to look at like just the ability of some of these smaller vessels to achieve some pretty significant effects, especially against some some larger carrier forces. So, right. I mean, we even saw this in, you know, the way Iran is using, you know, fast boats, in, right. you know, in the Gulf and things like that. So uh, uh, the tonnage piece, I guess, doesn't always resonate with me exactly because it's sort of like really about how you're employing them and. <laughs> Also, the bigger you are, more tonnage going to the bottom <laughs> of the ocean. Like in Potentially, yeah, right? You're a bigger target. So, you know, I think the Marine Corps has been kind of wary about having too many big targets and things like that. So, yeah, more tonnage. Hopefully that does equate. And I, I hope that is, uh, you know, a pro in our column. But uh, it doesn't doesn't give me great. Um, it doesn't make me feel too good. <laughs> so, I don't know. We'll have to see. I mean, the, the, it is hard to believe, though, that they're not moving faster than that, given some of the shipbuilding capacity that they have and just how fast they've been churning out some ships. So it's actually surprising that that number is it's a not bit much higher. higher. That, yeah. that was actually one of my impressions as well. Um, and they have like those pictures of just like five of those Type 55 destroyers, like all right next to each other in one yard. <laughs> They got like massive, they could like, that's what's scary. If China wanted to put their, their mind to it and turn all of those yards into naval shipbuilding, that is one scary prospect. Well, and I, I wonder if they're just talking about the conventional Navy, uh, you know, the, the PLN or whatever, and, and not all the other vessels that, you know, the maritime militia, you know, the, the Chinese Coast Guard and all the private, you know, private ships that we know we know China will use in a fight or, you know, potentially, car, you know, cargo ships that will have yeah. missiles on them un, unexpectedly. So, you know, uh, if you're just talking about the conventional Navy, then maybe it is just one, one piece of a larger force that would become available to China if, if it was, you know, an all out fight. Well, I mean, people's personal yachts were part of the fight at Dunkirk, right? <laughs> oh yeah. That's, yeah. that's a good point. Uh, deja vu the army's 21st century hr platform delayed again indefinitely uh so this is 557 million dollar program for the integrated personal pay system in the army over seven years it's led by khaki or caci i think they prefer to be called uh, so they did a bunch of stuff in terms of uh tracking awards personnel requests assignment transfers all this other type of stuff uh, but senior leaders opted not to launch the platform uh, 
even though it was mostly functional because not all elements were functional. And so it looks like they're going to put another $500 million on the contract here, bring the total price tag to a billion. Um, None of that sounds really good. But, you know, one thing that stuck out to me was this idea of, I wonder, like, you know, what modules were working and, like, why do they need to get to this 100% everything works solution before you do this total transfer over? You know, was there ever a way that they could have kind of actually taken smaller bites of this apple and kind of grown it out, you know, instead of like this, what we traditionally do? Yeah, so this gets into the defense business system sort of arena, which is a little bit more complicated on the software side, only because some of the functions, they actually do need to transfer over all at once because you can't have two systems that are yeah. maintaining records and then you get, you know, incongruities and stuff. So, But they have uh, the core functionality, they said. So yeah, I, I, know, I know. There's going to be yeah. some pieces that are going to be missing and no one wants like a data gap in there. Like even for me, like when you look at the inflation history, when they change the fiscal year over and they move that, you get like a 1970T year. I'm just like... <laughs> man, I have to deal with this every time I got to like, you know, like do an inflation thing. It just bothers me, but it's like, I don't know, something to deal with, you know? Yeah. So to your point though, this can be done differently. You can deprecate a system, you know, in modules and you just have to figure out the right modules so that the functionality doesn't get broken apart for, for those key functions. So I don't know what the core, what core is in this particular regards, but you, you can imagine for a personnel and pay, you know, probably, you know, uh, yeah. <laughs> you hire time of stuff and, you know, paychecks and disbursement. All of that. So, you know, you could, you could imagine like if they started pay, double paying someone like this is right. huge news and you're screwed. So no risk. Right. So person, yeah, assignments, tra- you know, transfers, all that kind of stuff has to has to be done right. So there probably was a lot of attention and a lot of demands. W- one of the challenges that I've that I've heard because. I'm playing a little bit more in this space now, even though I don't really want to, um, is that, you know, these requirements are real tough because you know, oftentimes there's a lot of different opinions about how things should be. And so you need to get these like senior functionals and it becomes, it can become a really long drug out process depending on uh, how authoritative some of the decisions are and how consistent they, they are. Um, because doing some of these things, making some of these changes across the entire enterprise, like ERP type systems, it's a big deal, right? And it takes a long time to get people used to the new process. Hopefully you've streamlined some things, uh, you know, gotten a better architecture and all those things. And, and it can take some time. And that's why there's been so many big, massive overruns on some of these DBS programs. Um, so this is not easy work, but it does just, just, you know, make me despair a little bit that it's going to require over a billion dollars for this because, I guarantee you they, they could have done it better with probably some more uh, commercial-oriented contractors. Um, I'm sure Salesforce would probably not have cost a billion dollars. So I really would like to see DoD use more of these commercial services that can be tailored uh, rather significantly for DoD purposes. But there is a real reluctance in DoD to use that use them, and I think we need to get over that. So Yeah, I think some of that is, again, like they want their data that way. And if yeah, you go yes. over to them, you're you're going to kind of like have this break in data history and some things will be different and like just deal with like, is that going to cause the army to crash? I don't know. Like which ones will and which ones won't. <laughs> you know? um, but, but part of it is like you said, you, they don't there's there's a reluctance to change processes because you've sort of always done it a certain way. And yeah. but sometimes the commercial systems like 
you know, corporations have to hire people and assign people too. It's not like it's some <laughs> completely unique thing. Um, and sometimes they just need, you just need to adapt more to how the commercial sector does it and go, oh, do we need these 50 things? Well, maybe you do in some cases because it's statutory, but maybe some of it's just become baggage and, and sort of it's unnecessary. And so that's part of understanding, you know, doing the business reprocessor engineering and that understanding. Be, yeah. 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 That would make so much sense if they did that, right? And, and it would make sense if they kind of did that with the eye of onboarding um, a commercial technology, because ultimately, what would you would gain so much, right? Not only are you you not like paying to rebuild all this infrastructure that's already been built, but you're going to have like the workforce, right? Like people in the army are going to have marketable skills in the commercial sector, and people from the commercial sector will be able to actually come to the army and work much more easily. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Didn't think about that. Yeah, it's a good. Point. These these like kind of like random costs that would never enter a cost benefit analysis, but could be critical to you know actually like what makes sense. Yeah, in a way, it could maybe even make uh, recruiting easier because you'd have access to skills. You know, if you get, I guess, if you get access to that data, um, but you could, yeah, you could see more easily what skills were available. Yeah, across. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, so we'll move quickly through these last ones, and then I'll, I'll give you a chance to kind of bring up anything you thought was interesting. Uh, did one the there's one article here, Air Force Digital Transformation Office talking about 3D tooling, the T7A slash assembly hours by 80%. That's the trainer from Boeing, and half the time that uh, was needed for software development. So this is being used on the the Sentinel, the new ground based strategic deterrent A10. Um, so one of the things here, again, interesting for digital transformation, they said, um, instead of having like this detailed roadmap, he emphasizes the need for reliable, flexible funding mechanisms, foundational infrastructure and digital tools. I, I, I love that. <laughs> what do you think of that one? I mean, that, that seems to make sense, right? Because a lot of this is kind of like infrastructure. Um, oh, yeah. Frame of record out of that. Or are you going to have like these just capability streams? I don't know. Well, I mean, I think the key there is when you when you are using virtual models and uh, these three D tools, you, you can make you can make decisions faster. And honestly, you know, one of the visions for digital engineering moving towards uh, kind of that digital trinity that vision that Dr. Ripper set was you know to eliminate a lot of documentation and then you build it into the models so you can do competition through you know use of models. So yeah, if you have that foundational infrastructure, you can really pull in. A lot of things to to just be faster overall, and to uh, make engineering decisions a lot easier, make business decisions a lot easier, and that's where I think you know why he's talking about the flexible funding is, yeah, if you can speed up those other things, you also need the flexible funding so that you can go do those other things, right? Because you may not always know. I think that's the point about the roadmap. You may not always know all those things because you're learning as you're doing this, and so. Yeah, it's that is really the future. Uh, absolutely believe it. Um, OMFE, you know, some of these new programs are trying to do that. Really become model based and uh, you know rely on the digital, uh, all those digital tools that are out there in the commercial sector to to just be faster. So yeah, this is great. Pentagon suspends F thirty five deliveries after discovering materials from China, and so this they this it was way down the the supply chain here. It's an alloy that's used in a magnet. That is used in a turbo pump. Um, ultimately, that alloy came from China. Um, Lockheed built the overall aircraft, but the turbo machine pumps were actually produced by Honeywell. And so this probably came a little bit slightly further down that supply chain. Big deal, little deal? 
no, no, not not a deal at all. It, it's, it's there's a there's a law on specialty metals, and so we ran, we ran into this every year. We'd have to get waivers to specialty metals, and it is just a huge huge process. Um, it's it's a silly it's a silly thing in the sense that we're not producing a lot of these alloys domestically, and so a lot of them do have to come from overseas, and you can't always tell your supply chain that well. And so it must have something must have triggered them to realize that something something they actually did know where the supply chain was and that there was something from China. So, but yeah, we had to deal with this every year on magnets because all the magnets come from China. That's where the processing is. So, yeah, it should that law should be changed. I think I think it's a little bit overkill. What is the Marine Corps' advanced uh, advanced reconnaissance vehicle ARV? Uh, so the ARV here for the Marine Corps is kind of going to replace the the light amphibious vehicle, the LAV, and it's going to have six different variants, command and control, um, organic precision fire, counter UAS, 30 millimeter autocannon, and anti-tank guided missile logistics and recovery. So those are the the different types. Uh, Spanish-German companies start work on hypersonic missile interceptor. And so that was part of that big uh, European Union kind of like um, awards for research and development. I think it was over a billion. Uh, it looks like a hundred million is kind of going to this one. So they're starting with defense and makes sense. And we'll see what the Europeans can do. And last one we'll do here, Air Force faces key question for next generation fighters, uh, drone wingmen. And so this is the Skyborg program. We were talking about whether it's going to actually become a program of record for FY 2024 or not. It only got 53 million or was requested in uh in the fy23 which feels pretty low uh, for trying to get into that program of record uh but they really there wasn't really much resolution here on what's going to happen a lot of it was just kind of talking about the autonomy core system that they were using to prove out that could go on several different um airframes so yeah we had some (laughs) yeah we had some well we had some interesting uh discussion internally about the cca it, it, uh, Kendall made some pretty strong, I mean, and we'll see next week because next week is the Air Force, Air Force and Space Association, uh, you know, meeting in D.C. And so uh, Kendall will be giving a big speech there. And I imagine this will come up. But, but he's made indications that he's going to work with the uh, the Australians on the ghost bat and that that ghost bat might be what he called a risk reduction sort of effort, which I interpret as maybe that is a near term solution. Maybe we'll, we'll do some upgrades to it. Uh, but a near-term solution for getting some higher-end drones out there. Uh, but then I personally think there is going to be a, a collaborative combat aircraft that's developed uh, collaboratively or, uh, co- um, uh, you know, in, in line with the NGAD. I think it will be developed, you know, on the same path, uh, maybe using some of the same technologies. And that will be a lot more exotic and a much higher price point. I think the big question is, okay, if they do the ghost bat, and they do this higher end drone that's going to like potentially support NGAD B21, uh, you know, actually be able to accompany them, have similar capabilities. Uh, will there be a third drone? Will there be something in the middle that could be produced much cheaper, um, you know, in, in greater quantities? So I think that's what we'll have to watch out for. This, you know, autonomous core system is supposed to be transferable. We'll see. Um, but is it transferable for just for the NGAD one that's going to be the high end drone? Um, or is it going to be for uh, some other types of drones that the Air Force hasn't really announced yet? So uh, we will have to wait and see. Yeah, it sounded like they wanted the B-21 and the NGAD family of systems to kind of interoperate and go between them. 
Uh, that's at least what kind of Tim Grayson was saying. But yeah, I think a lot to a lot to see and a lot of questions coming out of this. Um, so it'll be interesting to, to have that go. And thanks for joining, Matt. And we'll talk to you next time. All right. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.